Salvatore Monday is this famous painting that was done by Leonardo da Vinci between 1499 and 1510. It measures 26 inches high, 19 inches wide. It is currently the most expensive painting in the world. It was sold at auction by Christie's in New York on November 15, 2017 for the astonishing, record-breaking price of $450 million. The painting was thought to have been destroyed or lost around 1603, but in 2005, the painting showed up in an estate auction of a Baton Rouge businessman. The painting had been heavily overpainted, making it look like a cheap copy. It was cracked and broken in several pieces. It was described at the time as a wreck, dark and gloomy. The consortium of art dealers who purchased it at this auction at the time paid $1,175 for it. Recognizing what they thought they might have, they had it carefully restored and they discovered that it was indeed the original by Leonardo da Vinci. People can have very different ideas about the value of something. In the story that we'll be looking at today, we're going to see a stark contrast in the value that people place on Jesus. Some people see Jesus as priceless. Others see Jesus as little more than a commodity to be sold for their personal gain. Let's flip over to Matthew chapter 26 as we continue our Bible study through the Gospel of Matthew. In verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. This is when Jesus had finished saying these things. These things that is being talked about is the extended teaching section in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, which we have looked at over the course of the last uh, two or three weeks. Jesus says the Passover is two days away. It's now Wednesday of the final week of Jesus' life. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are two Jewish festivals that are observed back to back with each other. Passover is observed on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is then celebrated for the next seven days following. Because these two festivals are observed together, they're typically treated as a single event commemorating God delivering the Israelite people from Egyptian slavery. This is one of the pilgrim feasts that's observed by Jews annually, which meant that people from all over would travel to the city of Jerusalem to participate. The population of the city swelled by several times during this festival, stretching it to capacity with out-of-towners. Jesus said here, And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. I want us to see that Jesus is fully aware of the plot by the religious leaders to have him killed, even how they will do it, framing him and having him crucified by the Romans. Jesus was not caught off guard. 
He knew what they were going to do before they knew what they were going to do. He came into this world for this purpose, to die as a sacrifice for our sins and to come back to life to make eternal life possible for us. Well, verse 3, it continues, it says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So here we're now given a peek into the scheming that was taking place. The religious leaders are gathered together at the residence of the high priest to plot how they are going to frame Jesus and have him killed. They decide they will wait until after the Passover festival to put their plan into action, though. With this huge crowd in the city at the time, there is high potential for riot, and they don't want to risk that. They're going to change their mind, minds, though, about this and move their plans forward when one of Jesus' closest disciples offers to help them later in the story when we get down to verse 14. But before moving on, I want us to notice here the gross hypocrisy going on. These people are meeting at the house of the high priest to plan the framing and killing of an innocent person. These are people who are supposed to be the examples of doing the right thing, but they're actually doing awful things. And they're doing them at the house of the person who is supposed to be the greatest example of goodness of all of them, the high priest. The scene changes now from this, these, this dark seat of power in the city of Jerusalem to the small town of Bethany, about two miles east of Jerusalem, situated on the other side of the Mount of Olives. In verse 6, it says, While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. So they're eating at the home of a man named Simon the leper. We don't know how Simon got this name. Some believe he once had leprosy and Jesus had healed him. Now, just between you and me, I don't think I would like that nickname no matter how I acquired it. People in that culture didn't usually sit in chairs around a table while they ate. Instead, they reclined around a table, leaning on a cushion with one arm while they ate with the other, with their feet pointing out away from the table. And this is the scene that we have here. While Jesus and the other people are reclining around the table eating, a woman takes a bottle of very expensive perfume and she pours it on Jesus' head and feet. Now, Matthew, he doesn't say who this woman is, but John's gospel tells us it is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. John's account of the story, which is found in John chapter 12, also tells us that Mary not only pours this perfume on Jesus' head, but on his feet and then uses her hair to wipe Jesus' feet afterward. We learn in Mark's telling of this story that this bottle of perfume 
was worth more than a year's worth of a common worker's wages. So think about your own life for a moment to put this into perspective. The amount of money that you make in a year's time working full-time. Think about what that amount is, what your salary for a year is. That perfume is valued at that price. It costs a year's worth of your wages to buy that perfume. See, this is not Old Spice aftershave or some imitation French fragrance that you would pick up at Walmart. This is some of the finest perfume that money can buy at the time. Expensive bottles of perfume like this were sometimes used as long-term investments in those days. These bottles of perfume were very rare and they maintained their value over time. And because of their relative small size, they were easy to store and to keep hidden. This perfume may have been Mary's life savings, her retirement fund, her nest egg, a family heirloom, a large inheritance. This perfume, it represents her financial security in this life. And what does she do with this very expensive perfume? She doesn't put a little behind Jesus' ears, dab a little of it here and there on his feet. Instead, she pours the entire bottle out on his head and his feet, as if it were little more than ordinary water. The house is filled with its fragrance. This is a beautiful expression of Mary's love for Jesus. She's giving him what is most likely the most valuable material thing she owns. Well, not everyone appreciates what she's done here. Far from it. In verse 8, it says, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. So we have some of the people who are present. They're outraged at this gross waste of this very expensive perfume. They say, why this waste? This perfume, it could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. And on the surface, this sounds like a very legitimate criticism, doesn't it? I mean, this represented a lot of money that has been literally splashed around. Matthew identifies the people who are criticizing Mary's actions and complaining about this waste of the perfume. It's Jesus' own disciples. We learn from John's telling of the story that the person complaining the loudest among them is Judas Iscariot, the disciple who will betray Jesus. Again, Mark's telling of the story says they rebuked Mary harshly for what she has done. Have you ever noticed how pious and generous people can be with other people's money and resources? Whose perfume is this? Well, it's Mary's perfume. Who decides what is done with this perfume? Mary, of course. I've observed that the people who are the stingiest with their own money are often the quickest to volunteer other people's money to be donated for the cause. 
And it's the stingiest people who tend to be the most judgmental of others about how they are using their money. Our judgmental attitude can reveal the true nature of our own heart, can't it? What appears to be a heartfelt concern for the poor expressed by Judas and the other disciples is really hypocrisy and spiritual blindness. If they really wanted to do something for the poor, then they should do something for the poor, no matter what Mary may or may not be doing with her own resources. Telling others what they should be doing is not a substitute for us doing it ourselves. See, we don't get points for telling others what to do. It's one of the hazards of my job. I'm up here telling you what to do. But if I'm not doing it myself, I'm in big trouble because I don't get points for telling others what to do. I have to do it myself. Sadly, they fail, too, to appreciate this beautiful expression of worship by Mary. They're blind to what is going on here on a spiritual level. They don't recognize the significance of these last moments that they are having with Jesus. Jesus is going to die for them in a couple of days, but they're unaware of that. They've not understood the very plain statements that Jesus has made on several occasions about his rejection, his suffering, his death, Verse 10, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. So Jesus, he immediately comes to Mary's defense. He tells them they should be commending her for her actions rather than condemning her. What they call a gross waste, Jesus calls a beautiful thing. This comes as a shock to them. Before Jesus weighs in on what is happening Mary's critics were convinced that they were in the right and she was clearly in the wrong. They thought that they possessed the moral high ground on this situation. They were the ones with the good intentions here, caring for the poor. They had expected to hear Jesus commend them, saying something like, you guys have made a very insightful and important point here. Indeed. This perfume should have been sold and the money used to feed the poor. What were you thinking, Mary? What have you done wasting this? This is a very foolish thing you've done. But that's not how Jesus responds. We can be so out of step with Jesus about what's important, can't we? I mean, I'm ashamed to admit how many times I have felt so right about something and learned later how foolish and wrong I was. Consider what Mary has done in comparison to what these others suggest should have been done. Their suggestion clearly has all of the markings of a good deed. Selling the perfume, using the proceeds to feed the poor. What Mary has done with the perfume is an extravagant expression of love. Which one does Jesus praise? Mary's. We naturally tend to gravitate 
toward religiously minded good deeds, to affirm ourself before God and others, to feel good about ourselves. But that often leans towards a self-centered, self-justifying salvation, doesn't it? What the Lord wants from us is our love and our depending on Him and what He's done for us. Does He want us to do good deeds? Of course. But not as a means of justifying ourselves before Him and others. Our good deeds ought to be done as an expression of love for the Lord and for others. Jesus continues in verse 11, and he says, The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Now, just to clarify, Jesus is not implying in in any way that we should not be concerned about the poor. The Bible clearly teaches the importance of helping the poor. Proverbs 14.31, for example, says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. 1 John 3.17, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Jesus is saying they will have many opportunities to help the poor, but Jesus will not be with them much longer. In less than two days, he's going to be put on trial, condemned, and nailed to a cross to die. In addition to this act of Mary's being an expression of her love and her worship of Jesus, he says it is also a preparation of his body for his burial. That's interesting. A question that comes to mind for us is whether Mary understood that or not. Did she know Jesus' death was imminent? I think she did have some sense of that. See, Mary was always a good listener to Jesus. Do you remember the story in Luke 10 of Martha and Mary? Martha was frustrated with her sister Mary because she wasn't helping her care for the many guests in their home when Jesus was there. Instead, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, intently listening to him as he taught. And Jesus told Martha that Mary had chosen the better thing to do in that moment. Mary paid careful attention to what Jesus said and taught. She was one of his best students and one of the most spiritually in tuned of his followers because of it. I believe she is one of the few people at the time who did know Jesus would only be with them a short time more because she had been listening to what Jesus was saying. Jesus had been telling his disciples again and again, especially as he got nearer to Jerusalem. Most of them didn't listen to him, though. They always passed it off when he talked about being rejected and killed. Mary listened and took what Jesus said to heart. One of the difficult things about someone dying who we care a great deal about is not having the opportunity to tell them all the things that we wish we had before they died. Mary is expressing her love to Jesus right now 
while she still has the opportunity. Verse 13, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus says this story of Mary's act of love and devotion to him will be remembered and told wherever the gospel is preached. And we're witnessing the fulfillment of Jesus' words here today, aren't we? Because here we are, we're telling the story of what she did. Now, before we move on, I would like to compare this story with another little story, which both Mark and Luke include in their gospel books, which I think helps us take hold of an important underlying lesson here. Uh, over in Mark chapter 12, verse 41, we have this little short story says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. In the story about this poor widow who put the two tiny coins into the temple offering, many of the people watching, I'm sure, were thinking it was a useless gift. They were thinking, what can be done with a few pennies? In the story about Mary pouring this very expensive perfume on the head and feet of Jesus, those watching, they criticize her and they complain that it's a foolish and gross waste. Well, the poor widow, she had given to the Lord all that she had to live on, Jesus said. Mary, here, she gave the Lord the most valuable thing she owned. Jesus praises both of these people for their sincere devotion and love. Neither of them concerned themselves with the risk or cost involved. They simply loved the Lord. Jesus doesn't simply look at the human wisdom or practicality or ingenuity of our acts. He looks at the love for Him that's expressed through them, no matter how small or great those acts might appear to be. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength. And this is what we see these two people do. In verse 14 of Matthew 26, the scene changes again. It says, Then one of the twelve the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? Talking about Jesus. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. These verses, they pick up the story 
from verses 3 through 5 that we looked at a moment ago, the religious leaders, they have been looking for a sly way to arrest Jesus and have him killed. But as we read in those earlier verses of the chapter, they decided to wait until after the Passover festival to make their move against him because they were concerned about the crowds rioting. Judas, though, he provides them an opportunity now that changes their minds about waiting. Judas, being an insider, he'll be able to tip them off about when and where Jesus will be when he's away from the crowd so they can quietly and quickly take him into custody. They agree to give Judas a certain sum of money for betraying Jesus. 30 pieces of silver, a relative pittance of money. Now the question that comes to mind is why? Why did Judas betray Jesus? Of, of all the people who would inspire the undying loyalty of his followers, it would be Jesus. So why would one of those closest to him choose to betray him? Well, first, make no mistake, Judas made his own choice to betray Jesus. Although his betrayal of Jesus was foretold in prophecies centuries before it happened, he was not some kind of robot being swept along by a predetermined fate that had to be fulfilled himself, having no choice in the matter. Nor was Judas being controlled by Satan forced to act against his own will. Judas was responsible for his actions, even though those actions also corresponded with prophecy and the will of Satan. Judas chose to do what he did, and he was responsible for it. So did Judas betray Jesus for the money? 30 pieces of silver? It's like he sold himself pretty short on the deal if that were the case, but maybe. He was the treasurer for the group, and not a very honest one. John tells us that he was a thief, and he used to regularly help himself to what was in the group's money bag. Was Judas in league with one of the radical political groups wanting to overthrow the Romans? So maybe he was thinking that by having Jesus arrested, he would be pushing Jesus to begin a revolt against Rome. Maybe. Doubtful. There were also forces in the spiritual realm at work in Judas's betrayal. Luke 22.3 and John 13.27 both tell us that at this time, Satan entered into Judas. This was not just some little conflict between the Jewish religious leaders and Jesus over some ideological differences that they had with each other. In reality, this conflict is cosmic in scope. It's a battle between God and his good intentions to save us versus Satan and others who want to forever imprison people in sin and death. The battles that you and I witness in the physical realm are just small parts of a larger war taking place in the spiritual realm. 
Satan wanted to destroy Jesus. He was working with and through the religious leaders and Judas to carry out his assault on Jesus. Satan knew Jesus is God the Son, and he knew Jesus had come to destroy his work. What Satan didn't realize at the time was that by killing Jesus, he would be playing into God's hands, sealing his own fate and ultimate defeat, and helping to secure the salvation of humanity. God took what was intended for evil and used it for good. God's sovereign will is being realized even through the sin and evil of those bent on killing God's Son, Jesus. Well, in closing, there was a big difference in the value that Mary and Judas each placed on Jesus. To Mary, Jesus is priceless. Mary gives the most valuable thing she has to Jesus as an act of love and worship. For Mary, Jesus is everything. To Judas, Jesus was a means to an end. He sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. For Judas, Jesus was a tool to get what he wanted. There are people in our own day, too, who see see Jesus more as a means to an end, as a tool to get what they want, rather than someone worthy to be worshipped and served, to be loved and adored, to give our life to. I'm reminded of two small parables that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13. 1344, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And in the next verses, he said again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything he had and he bought it. One of the things that distinguishes the best treasure hunters is their ability to recognize the true value of something. When you see Jesus, do you see an empty field of dirt? Or do you see a hidden treasure worth more than all you own? When you see Jesus, do you see a worthless glass bead or do you see a priceless pearl? Thinking back to the painting by Leonardo da Vinci, Salvatore Monday. When you see Jesus, do you see a cracked and broken, cheap decorator painting, or do you see a priceless masterpiece? I want to leave us with this final thought. As beautiful of an act of love as it was on the part of Mary to anoint Jesus' head and feet with that very expensive perfume, the act of love that Jesus did for us was far greater than that. He gave his life for us. He exchanged places with us. He died for us, taking the punishment that was ours and gave us his righteousness in exchange. Considering what he has done for us, Imagine the tremendous value that he has placed on you and me. 
John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story of this beautiful expression of love by Mary and also the heartbreaking act by Judas. But Lord, in these stories, we're reminded of how precious we are to you, and we thank you for that. Lord, help us to to value you and to see you as a great treasure worth all of our life for. And encourage us, Lord, too, of your great love for us, that you gave us your most precious thing, to rescue us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.